HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway Honey today. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, for this half-hour journey through culinary history. And, you know, there's often the question when people get together to go out to dinner, what should we eat tonight? Where should we go? And, of course, we've got Thai restaurants and Chinese restaurants and French restaurants. You know, you can't really eat, well, French restaurants, number one. You can't, you got to be in the right attire and have the right wallet, right? No, that's not fair. But Thai restaurants, Chinese restaurants are wonderful. You can't really eat that every single night, right? No one gets tired of Italian restaurants and Italian food. But, you know, it wasn't always that way. Now we've experienced something that I like to say, the empire strikes back, <laughs> or, or all roads lead to Rome, as uh, has been said about this. And here to talk to us about this global takeover of Italian food is John Mariani, who has researched the popularity for his, of this cuisine for his new book, How Italian Food Conquered the World. John Mariani is the food and travel columnist for Esquire magazine, often referred to as the most influential or most feared critic in food and wine in today's press. His work has been awarded three nominations by the James Beard Foundation. He's the publisher of Mariani's Virtual Gourmet Newsletter and is the author of the Encyclopedia of American Food and Drink and the ever fun and useful The Dictionary of Italian Food and Drink. That was the first book of his that I ever had. (laughs) And John, I welcome you here today. Thank you, Linda. Great book. I have really enjoyed this. As I told you before the show, it really speaks to my background uh not i'm not italian by any um by any heritage whatsoever my palate is italian however and my background is having lived in italy and cooking um italian and you really you really captured 
much of what I experienced in my life, and I really I, I appreciate and thank you for this book. But let's talk about this. I mean, Italian food, people, everyone knows spaghetti, everyone knows, you know, pizza and Italian dishes, even even beyond red sauce joints. They all know that today. However, Italian food was not always so popular. What can you say about that? Well, it was popular, but it was of the kind that you just described. People expected it to be uh, cheap, number one. People expected it to be heavy, number two. Um, They didn't expect the ingredients to be all that wonderful to begin with. They just kind of like, everybody likes the flavors of tomatoes and mozzarella and meatballs and so forth. So that was food that was uh, brought over, or the ideas were brought over, by the very impoverished Italian immigrants of the late 19th and early 20th century. And they prospered here, most specifically in in New York, where we are, in Providence and and Boston, because they were able to find uh, ready markets, um, not always Italian ingredients. They couldn't really get good olive oil, and they had to import canned tomatoes, even though the tomato came from America in the first place. (laughs) They were importing canned tomatoes, and they couldn't get basil, and they couldn't get many of the things that they had remembered from the old country, where, again, I emphasize that they were so poor that they could barely afford to eat many of the things that I just described. Uh, right. Very little meat, very, very little Yeah, fish. they were living on gruel and, you know, and bread if they could in get the, it. Yeah, bread and, and vegetables and beans if they could get a little olive oil. Um, and up in the north, they were living in, on polenta uh, three times a day uh, with maybe some salt and pepper. And uh, that's really the story of, of Italy uh, from the uh, 18th to the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And, it, well, it's interesting because, uh, I don't know if you know Jane Ziegelman's book, 97 Orchard Street. It's a wonderful look at five immigrant families who ended up at the um, New York uh, Lower East Side Tenement House. And the, the smell of garlic was was associated with immigrants, and particularly it Italian immigrants, but, you know, Romanian. In a very, and, very uh, pejorative way. Exactly. Garlic eaters. Right, garlic exactly. Garlic mm-hmm. greasers. It, mm-hmm. And um, they actually had, they, they would spend the nickel they made, it probably took them all day to make, on the on imported pasta. Mm-hmm. One man was bringing pasta, and they would they would buy that, and then all of a sudden it disappeared. Well, a lot of the but, imported a lot of the imported pasta was replaced by uh, pasta producers right here in Brooklyn and New York. Br- Brooklyn had dozens of pasta producers. Macaroni, right. macaroni yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got some great pictures of, of, of the old macaroni eaters in there, and I thought that that was with terrific. their fingers. That with their of course with their fingers. Uh, well, in this book, you you do go back to ancient times to sort of tell us where how how we came about how this how the food all kind of developed and the flavors that we know of as italian cuisine um back to ancient rome in fact right mm-hmm. well ancient rome was a microcosm of the mediterranean ah and that uh, that's what i wanted to ask you said one of your chapters you start with a chapter called soup surrounded by too many spoons what do you mean by this well it's an old expression that italy was invaded by just about everybody in europe and the mediterranean the phoenicians were there the north africans the spanish the french the austrians i mean everybody the greeks Everybody invaded um, Italy, and because of its its marvelous irregular coast, and because it's sticking out in this big, huge peninsula, 
it was a great source for food, especially wheat growing was very, very good there. The Greeks called um, Italy Enofrulia, meaning basically um, a wineland. Um, so everybody attacked it. Everybody wanted to uh, 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 have it for as a breadbasket, so to speak. Um, and there, were, there was no such thing as Italy until the 1860s. They, right. When people referred to Italy, even in ancient text, it was, as they would say, Asia or Europe. There wasn't any Italy. There were just 20 different, eventually 20 different regions from Tuscany down to Sicily. Mm-hmm. And those regions only were, uni- were united in 1861, uh, which it became a kingship, uh, actually, uh, rather than a democracy uh, early on, and that didn't last too long. But um, at that time, you can start talking about an Italy, and you can start talking about Italian food, because there was a certain coalescence among those 20 regions. There's better transportation, so that now you could ship canned tomatoes up north, and you could ship uh, a, a polenta or cornmeal down south. So that was going on. There was and of course, a, they had to wait for those foods from the New World to arrive Yeah, I mean, to both, develop their cuisine. Both the that. tomato and corn came, as well as chili peppers, peppers as well as right. potatoes came from the New World after Columbus uh, discovered not a spice route, but uh, a, a, new world uh, a, a cornucopia of new foods. And of course, yeah. Europe exported to the New World uh, most animals we know of, of pigs and and cattle and uh, chickens and everything else, which the New World did not have. Well, for our listeners who maybe have not read up on um, on some of the Italian cuisine history, you do bust the myth of Marco Polo bringing noodles to Italy. So <laughs> tell us about that. That noodles or a form of it existed for a long time. In, yeah, in Marco Polo came back after 14 years and we dictated his memoir which was widely read and extremely important, what he said was that the Chinese eat noodles just like we've been eating for hundreds of years. The funny thing is is that nobody picks up on the fact that he did, in fact, bring rice back to Europe. And no mention of that. Nobody mentions it. Um, Rice didn't really catch on, as you know, in Europe, but in the Po Valley and other places, it eventually led to what we call riso or risotto. In Italian, but it wasn't a big hit. <laughs> it's tough to raise, right? You have to have marshes and yeah. all of those things. Yeah. Well, you know, so all of this wonderful food and the lucky travelers who got to go and, and taste of it, although some, Goethe included, did not necessarily find the Italian cuisine all that wonderful or welcoming. Was well, well just, just to call it cuisine, you would be talking specifically and only about the aristocratic courts of all over Europe, whose menus more or less resembled one another. So if you read uh, Il Gatto Pardo, the, the leopard um, by Lampedusa, the, this duke, this grand duke of, of Sicily, he says, do we have to have that food we have? I know we have the relatives from France coming over, the Spanish people, but <laughs> Do we have to have all those soups and things? I want to have, let's do a timbalo of spaghetti. Well, that that was very, very rare, uh, even that. Um, But more so, the royal courts were serving a kind of international cuisine called a continental, if you like. Whereas the people from province to province, region to region, were barely had a a, a subsistence level of food. And um, what Goethe was describing was starving, hungry children, and, and, and Dickens himself, he says, and there mm-hmm. were beggars. Everywhere. It was like, in basically, in the 19th century, Italy was more like India in the 19th and 20th century, just beggars everywhere, 12-year-old children working in, in coal mines. Um, that, was, that was Italy, and that's why my grandparents got out. They came from the south. And, like many uh, others, right. Like 5 million from 1880 right. to 1920. Right. It's interesting because you talk a lot about the early 
Italian immigration to Louisiana, which a lot of people don't realize that a lot of that the first wave of Italian immigration was really to work in the in the fields, in the rice fields in Louisiana, right? Yeah, right after World, uh, right after the Civil War, rather the American Civil War, um, a lot of the blacks who were former slaves, did not want to work the plantations anymore. And um, the Italians were willing to do so. And specifically, they, they brought them over because they were getting, in Louisiana, they're getting cartons of citrus fruit, which all seemed to come from Palermo, hmm. from Sicily. So they say, well, if these people are picking citrus fruit and that kind of heat, why don't we ask them to come here? And, and the Italians did come. They were almost exclusively Sicilian, Sicilian and they came right. to dominate the fruit industry. And within a few few years, they were making millions of dollars on their own from strawberries in parishes outside of New Orleans. Big hmm. success story. Yeah, interesting. And then, of course, um, we have the the big wave of, of immigration in the U.S., as you mentioned, was uh, later in the 18, later late 1800s. Yeah, 95% of them were, were Southern Italian. I mean, mm-hmm. if, we, if we threw a if we threw a focaccia down the street here in, in Brooklyn, you would hit a Calabrian, you would hit a Sicilian, you would hit an Abruzzese, and all these people came to uh, what were first tenements, settled in Little Italy, and certainly all over, all over Brooklyn. Um, started out with grocery stores, ran a pizzeria. Suddenly, the Americani were actually coming to eat at these little places. Spaghetti and joints, yeah. Spaghetti joints. Big bohemian uh, hangouts because oh, yeah. you could eat cheap and, and it was great food. Americans loved it. Right? Yeah, you know, Elaine's, which just closed on the yeah. Upper East Side, that started out in the village in Greenwich, just another spaghetti joint right. and, yeah. um, and a pizzeria. And the, the ironic thing is that when these uh, pizzeria owners became successful, and they became a ristorante, a real <laughs> restaurant. They closed, they shut down that pizza oven because that was symbolic of low-class Italian food. The irony is today that there's not an Italian restaurant opening anywhere. That, that has to have a wood-burning oven or a coal-burning or some type of electric pizza oven. Here exactly. we are at Roberta's in the back of Roberta's, which example. got its fame through pizza and mm-hmm. still makes you know daily great pizza, and that's what they're known for. Well... As you said, primarily the the immigrants were Southern Italian, maybe just just barely over the Mezzotrope, just barely over the line. Yep. But you know, I think Abruzzo was probably the most northern mm-hmm. um, part that anyone came from. Consequently, the food that we knew of, or the, the Americans first knew of from Italy, was all red sauce stuff. I mean, you know the. Red sauce, which you know, pastas and pizza, as you said, pizza. Which goes on today, which is to say that uh, one of the reasons I titled the book How Italian Food Conquered the World is that um, if we were sitting in Mumbai right now, if we were sitting in Saigon, um, I can guarantee, I, I certainly, certainly in Berlin, certainly in Buenos Aires, just everywhere, there are more Italian restaurants opening up than anything else. Hmm. And those restaurants will probably copy the Italian-American red sauce model rather than the Piemontese model or the Tuscan model, the Umbrian model. It will be red sauce. It will be tomato sauce, which seems to be universally loved. And even, I mean, you know, it appeals, it just seems to appeal to everyone. Mm -hmm. And interesting that, um, that it took so long to really catch on globally. But it really, there, as you mentioned in the beginning of the book, there probably isn't a country with a restaurant that doesn't have at least open any menu of any restaurant in any country in this world that has at least maybe one or two pasta dishes, some sure. sort of pasta, some no sort of what? Italian dish on it. And you know, well, there, there are, in, in the book I detail basically four or five things that had to happen and fortunately did happen 
um, uh, from the 1970s to the 1990s with Italian food. One was that, very important, that Italian ingredients, very good Italian ingredients, start to be shipped in. Thank God for FedEx and DHL. I swear to God. <laughs> um, so now you were getting extra virgin olive oil, which even Italians didn't use very no. much. It was expensive. You got real mozzarella. You got real prosciutto di Parma. You got real Parmigiano. Wild mushrooms. Uh, forget about white truffles, which are off the charts. But these and really fine Italian wines made by young Italian winemakers like Angelo Gaia and the Ruffinos and... and, and uh, and uh, many others uh, in the 70s, lifted the onus against Chianti in a straw bottle. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the wines, as you say, from Dago Red to, yeah. uh, you know, to higher quality yeah. wines soon. Um, we're going we're gonna, gonna to get, get to that, and I want to fast forward then, too, to how the development of the Italian food movement in the United States, and particularly you know, New York, where it really took off big, um, when we come right back after a short break. Following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune into the food scene Tuesdays at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Hosted by Michael Harlan Turkel, photo editor of Edible Brooklyn and Edible Manhattan magazines, he'll further explore the amalgamation of food and art by talking to artists from a multitude of media. Guests will range from photographers, food stylists, interior architects for restaurants, industrial designers, all the players that make you want to eat with your eyes. Get ready to feast your ears every Tuesday at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. We are back, and I'm talking with John Mariani about his new book, How Italian Food Conquered the World. And I'm getting hungry for a pizza, i got to tell you. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a good old red sauce joint or pizza. That's, I, you know, we can have sophisticated, fancy Italian food, but sometimes you just need that bowl of, of plain pasta yes, with a little tomato sauce. Um, you know, with, with the rise in, in Italian cuisine, well, even in Italy, um, there weren't, the recipes really weren't codified um, and, until quite late, and there were a few people who put them in order, and you mentioned in your book uh, Ada Boni and, and Luigi Carnacina. Um, but one of the most influential writers, you, and you did mention, was um, Pellegrino Artusi. And the Shenzhen Cucina, and that I mean that really put pulled together 
what we know of today as Italian cooking, Italian cuisine. It, it, it did in the book. Not only did that, but it had an enormous um, uh, repercussions beyond that. Uh, Pellegrino Wattuzzi was a banker. He retired. He was in, from Florence. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? So he, he cobbled together a cookbook. He was a, fancied himself a gourmet, but he hated pretension and French food. And he said, it's going to be an Italian cookbook. Took it to a publisher. Publishers said, <laughs> why would anyone want to buy this book and so he printed it himself and within 20 years he sold over 200,000 copies and it really did codify not quite like uh, La Russe Gastronomique or Escoffier did but it did codify Italian food uh, he barely mentions tomato sauce. He says, well, everybody knows how to make that anyway. Um, <laughs> but the repercussions of the book were also that it appealed to a burgeoning Italian housewife who uh, had a little bit more money and quite possibly could read and was educated in going to grammar school. And the cookbook was written in the Tuscan dialect, and that became, because of its popularity, the only other book that sold more was I Promessi Sposi, a novel by Mazzoni mm. from years before. And that and Pellegrino's book was so popular, Tuscan dialect became the formal Franca. Italian, yeah, lingua right. franca. Yeah, um, and, and in, in English, his the, it's um, science and the science and art of uh, of cooking, of of Italian cooking. cooking yeah. yeah, science and uh, I couldn't remember what <laughs> the, what the English uh, title was. Well, you know, we hadn't really. He also mentioned- makes a good case for garlic. He says, yeah. "I know a lot of people that shoe garlic, but it's it really can perk up a dish." <laughs> and now, look at all the health benefits that are attributed to that garlic. Too. Right? Well, so we've, as I say, we fast forward to to uh, an event that really seemed to take uh, to um, create this this um, frenzy of love of everything Italian, fashion, and then followed food and. Uh, I was really amazed to even kind of think about that, and you and you brought it to light. It's something that, uh, in, in doing the research for this book, it had been in the back of my mind because I noticed myself that back in the 1980s, uh, Italian food was becoming more than just popular. It was becoming quite chic and stylish. You had the openings of these trattorias, and what happened was this. When Italian sha- uh, fashion took the spotlight away from French fashion, And the Milan fashion shows of the 1980s, you had these new designers. You had had, uh, Armani, you had Versace, you had Dolce Gabbana, you had Missoni, Ferragamo. All of these new, brilliant, young guys um, were having fashion shows in Milan and taking out the owner of the uh, the buyer from Bloomingdale's, the uh, fashion editor of Vogue magazine. Uh, These were the people who were eating with the designers at these little trattorias, most Mm -hmm. of them Tuscan trattorias, even though it was in Milan, and like Bice and Giannino and others. And they started to photograph there. And they would bring the models in and put them on a Vespa. And they had the best photographers eating spaghetti with uh, old Italians. It was a whole coalescence of chic-style fashion and a new casual way to eat. So when it was translated to New York, when Bice opened, when Harry mm-hmm. Cipriani opened, this is all in the mid, mid-'80s, when um, La Madre opened, La Madre opened, La Madre opened right next door to the new Barney's, <laughs> and they wanted not a French restaurant to represent Barney because Barney's was pushing Italian fashion. We want an Italian restaurant, so they opened Trattoria, and this just caught fire 
Uh, and this, this, as I said, this connection between the two made perfect sense so that when Bill Blass gave a quote to the New York Times, he ate at Beach in New York on off Madison Avenue, 54th Street. And uh, it was a sweltering day in the middle of summer, and he had a plate of pasta and a uh, bottle of San Pellegrino. And he says, you know, let's face it, this is the way people want to eat today. Well, mm-hmm. kaboom. You know? And then what just sealed the whole case was in the 1990s, the uh, so-called Mediterranean diets, uh, yes. health benefits, right. uh, were written about extensively by the media. And people were suddenly scratching their heads saying, you mean... Italian food is not heavy, gloppy, greasy, right. fattening. Right. And uh, right. they said, well, no, you know, the people who wear Armani <laughs> eat Italian food every day, and they eat pasta at least once a day. And they eat this very good olive oil and the grains and the vegetables and more fish. It just it just all coalesced in the 1990s. Yeah, it's amazing that because people say, well, no, we, but we knew about spaghetti from, from way back when, since, you know, since we were kids. Well, yeah, but you didn't know about regional. They, people didn't know about regional Italian cuisine. I, the um, the first you mention in your book um, about the the first coast to coast flights mm-hmm. in uh, the late fifties, nineteen fifty eight, I think it was transatlantic. Transatlantic, yeah. right? Not coast to coast, transatlantic flights, um, opening up people's the world to um, you know to to foreign tastes and particularly Italian because Rome was one of the first places that uh, the transatlantic flights went. uh, Within weeks, London, Paris, and Rome were being flown by Pan Am and then quickly TWA. And this was a cheaper alternative to the only, let's face it, the only way to get there was on a steamship. Um, And the steamships, the United States line, the Cunard line, all of those lines, um, the Italian line, like the... Not not a bad way to go. Not a bad way to go, but it it (laughs) takes too long. (laughs) It took five days, and it was expensive. So these 747s came along and started to drop tens of thousands of mainly young Americans into Rome and Florence. And this transformed tourism as much as a little 157-page book which came out by a guy named Arthur Fromer. It was called Europe on $5 a day. And it was no exaggeration. I did it yeah, myself for yeah. about $10 a day. I was splurging. Um, <laughs> excuse me. But uh, he went around and showed that you could go to Rome. You could go to London, too, in Paris. But you could go into Rome, find a little bread and, be- bed and breakfast for a few hundred lira, $1.00. You could have a plate of pasta for a dollar and a glass of wine and espresso for another 50 cents. And, you, boy, you'd still have a buck and a half left over to go to the Uffizi in, in Florence. Or something. And maybe get a gelato. <laughs> and get a gelato. And, and really start to learn that the Italians were not these big, fat, slobby people that had been portrayed uh, in the past in the popular press. Uh, they, now they looked more, the, like the Italians looked more like Marcello Mastroianni. They looked more like Sofia Loren. They looked more like the people in these very chic movies in they, the post realism. They, they lost that the immigrant vision that people had of, yes. of the Italians. Yeah. Well, and, all immigrants. You know, every immigrant ever pictured in the 19th century, everyone, the Irish, the Jews, the Germans, if you look at caricatures, they always look like monkeys. Short, huh. Dwarf-looking monkeys. That's yeah, the way they were caricatured. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, then of course we moved on to movies and all the fashionable movies showing, you know, La Dolce Vita. Well, that was very important. You know, when, that was a very important. Well, just movie. the term itself. Yeah, exactly. You no, know, exactly. because the, the the movies that that Americans knew 
um, prior to La Dolce Vita were the neorealism movies which showed Open City and I just saw it the other night, Two Women and The Bicycle mm-hmm. Thief, an impoverished post-war Italy right. of people in bad clothes just doing anything for a meal. By 1955, the Italian economic miracle called Il Boom had taken place, and now you had very stylish, beautiful people and gorgeous movies uh, being made by directors like Fellini and you know this expansive operatic type of uh, of uh, motion pictures starring voluptuaries like uh, Anna Magnani and uh, and uh, uh, Sofia Loren and handsome handsome devils like Rosano Brazzi and Marcello and what were they doing in these movies they were usually the men at least were Rosano Brazzi were seducing American, American women, women right? <laughs> like uh, Catherine Hepburn and Audrey Hepburn, and uh, doing so over in little Italian restaurants with accordions. And boy, we fell hook, yep. line, and sinker for you that bet. image. You bet. But it, and it's funny that that <coughs> it took so long for um, for there to be an Italian cookbook in written in English. Uh, I remember one of the first authentic recipes I could find for, not that I'd actually use it because I knew what to make, but Craig Claiborne published one of the most authentic recipes for pesto genovese in his <coughs> New York Times cookbook. And that was yeah. what, that was back in 60, mm-hmm. maybe like 68, 69. Craig, maybe was, little, yeah. Craig, who was a southern boy from, I think, North Carolina, <coughs> Mississippi, rather, um, was also responsible for giving uh, a big, big boost to a woman cooking teacher named Marcella Hezan. That's right. Who went on to write one of the best-selling Italian cookbooks, the classic Italian cookbook, which became a, the only big bestseller. Well, Italian really, food. the first comprehensive Italian cookbook. There was only Italian recipes. You could exactly. find them in yeah. You could find an Italian recipe in in a compendium of of, <coughs> of other recipes and in, you know international cuisine. Yeah, but, and then, then came uh, Giuliano Bugiali, mm-hmm. who was fiercely Tuscan, and he's this his was the classic. Tuscan cookbook. So that's when you started to spread out to the provinces. So you'd have um, Abruzzi's cookbook and a lot of Sicilian cookbooks. But yeah, Marcella Hazan was about the only one that would hit the culinary bestseller list back uh, back in the 70s. Everything else was French or American or that's right. whatever. And it was nice because she, she really did introduce us to um, regions and identify the different dishes and the region that would come from and then and tell us a little bit why. In the head notes, she would, you know, uh, talk about maybe the fishing industry in Venice or something. Yeah. And, and then It's uh, also very interesting that in her first edition, <clears throat> she kind of uh, said that olive oil is cooked with in Italy, but I don't use as much of it as, as some because the olive oil was not very good when that first edition came out. Eight years later, when she revised it, she has four pages on olive oil, <laughs> talking about what extra virgin, virgin means, and cold press, and, and she says, this is what you use to cook with. Well, we how far we've come now. So now we've got Italian cooks on television galore, right? Sorry, yeah. um, with uh, well the Romagnoli's table that was long mm-hmm. ago. And then the, then there was a break for quite a while until that was in the seventies. And then uh, and Mario Batali and Giada Di Laurentiis, Marianne Esposito, and Lydia Bastianich. Um, Lydia, Lydia who, who wrote a beautiful introduction for your book. Yes, yeah, she did. Thank, thank you very much. Um, and. Uh, and and truly, um, these are the shows that have become the most popular. People very much so. The food is so approachable. It it is you know one thing that um, about Italian food that I try to explain to people 
who say, yes, but it's, is it complicated? I said, no, in fact, no. it's not complicated at all. And it's the one cuisine where you really let the flavor of the natural ingredient shine. Yeah. Should. And that's, and that is, I think that's what is so appealing to, to many people. And, and they continue to follow it. It is bad Italian food used to mean greasy, gloppy food. Bad Italian food today means food, uh, Italian food that is overwrought, too complex, too many things on the table. It's right. almost as if they took all of these new ingredients, balsamic vinegar and so forth, and decided to put them all on one on dish. On one dish, right. <laughs> well, let's talk wine. You, you, you had a, a cute little uh, chapter in there from Dago Red to Super Tuscan. <laughs> yes. We we I mean wine was wine was cheap in Italy. Nobody drank expensive wine in Italy. Um, I remember when I lived there, I would take my old empty Coca Cola bottles exactly. over to my local Vignoli and have them fill up my bottle with white white wine from the from the local hills. And then the red, I would sort of stay away from. But now things have certainly changed. Well, yeah, I mean there there were back in the nineteen even back in the nineteen twenties and thirties. If you were a wealthy person, you might uh, you might drink the better wines of your region. So if you came from Piedmont, you probably did drink Barolo uh, once in a while. But most people were drinking Spanna and, and Barbera and other things. As you said, almost nobody bought it in the bottle. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or if you did, you bought it in one of those big bottles with the straw around it. Fiasco. Huh? Yeah. And Chianti was the only wine that was really known uh, outside of Italy for decades and decades. That was what Dago Red was. Um, the American versions was usually made with Zinfandel. Um, and then in the 1960s, you had Riuniti on Ice, so nice, <laughs> which was a very sweet, fizzy um, uh, wine made from the Lambrusco grape. And uh, that caught on because it was like soda pop. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I, I wrote about in the book that I think probably I was the only one who noticed. Their theme song for Rioniti was Tararabuntia, Tararabuntia. Oh, yeah. That's right. And if you think back to the 50s, that was the song that was sung on the Howdy Doody show. It's Howdy Doody time. time. That's right. So they, I think they were being very canny uh-huh. in taking that memory that kids had who, who, are now who grew up adults, in the 60s, right? who were now adults, and they remember that song from Howdy Doody and the soda pop. and the, So Lambrusco was enormously successful. And following on that were Bola, the, the Bola wines, did a wonderful, very romantic series of TV commercials in the late 60s and 70s. And Franco Bolin's white suit would come out, and he'd talk about Bola Suave and Bardolino and so forth. And they they were very romantic. They were beautiful people passing in trains and toasting each other. Uh, so people thought of Italian wine as romantic, mm-hmm. as many other things uh, they did. And then, as I noted a little while ago, you had these young makers like Angelo Gaia, who quite literally said to their fathers and grandfathers, we have to rip out these vineyards and plant good grapes. And, of course, Grandpa would say, it's been good enough for us for 500 years. And this family says, but nobody really knew what grapes were growing because they miscegenate. uh, That is, uh, grapes just go and flourish, and you don't know what you've got there. So that's what people like Gaia, um, Antinori, and many others did. No, let's have the best grapes. Let's call ampelographers in what soils... 
and the the wine started to not only get very good very quickly in the 70s but it started to uh rank with the best among the wine media with the best from france and the best from california Mm -hmm. at that same time Mm -hmm. so the battle was won by the mid 80s well and so as the price of wine went up also we saw the price of the restaurants go up too um in the ingredients they were getting bringing in more exotic ingredients they were making specialty dishes uh People, as you mentioned before, people expected it to be cheap. It's sort of like in, they turned up their nose. They weren't going to pay this much money to go into a, a fancy restaurant. I mean, still won't. And well, there are still. I mean, I think there are a few that. They, well, what I mean is that there is not a single Italian restaurant in New York that approaches the price level that I would say the average deluxe French restaurant does. Mm. In other words, if we were at Le Bernardin or Danielle, if we went to, per se, we would be paying. For a three-course meal, $105, $110 for a three-course meal. Uh, even a restaurant like... Um, Del Posto. Del Posto, you're not going to spend that. You're going to spend 75 80 um, Unless you buy one of those really special wines. <laughs> well, you can do that in a French restaurant. Too, yeah, for that's you. true. But no, I mean, people. I, I, I get this all the time. People say, what? You know, $40 for a veal chop? Well, they'll go to a steakhouse... And spend the same $45 for a veal chop at a steakhouse, but if it's an Italian restaurant, they balk. $45 mm-hmm. for main course at an Italian restaurant? Forget about it. Right. Same right. veal chop, yeah. as in Sparks or, or uh, Palm <laughs> or Smith & Molensky. Right. Well, we have come a long way. That's, that's, there's no denying that. And I don't think there's anyone in the country, and I dare say the world now, who is not familiar with Italian cuisine in some form or another. And I have to say that you did a wonderful job of bringing that all together in this tr- a terrific and very well footnoted book, too. I really love the fact that you have all the sources in this book because there, you know, it makes you want to go and read a lot of the, um, the, the primary sources that you went to to get this information. Well, I put them in the back, but uh, because a lot of people just don't want to read footnotes at the at the bottom. No, but, but the, but the <laughs> but, sources, yeah, the, and and um, no, there's a lot of great stuff uh, if you want to look through that, like what George Washington Carver thought about uh, the Italians when he visited <laughs> them, and and uh, others. It's um, yeah, you, you, it was you, a lot of fun. It was a great deal of fun. You, to write you the get book. to appreciate, as you said, thirty five years, thirty five years in the making <laughs> of yeah. research and uh, in three months, months to write. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you certainly, I th- certainly thank you for all those years of research along the way, and I'm sure it was a lot of good eating too. Sure was. <laughs> right, and I'd like to thank you for coming and thank our executive producer Jack Inslee, and once again, this has been Linda Palaccio on a. Taste of the past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Uh, Our near neighbors, 
our trading partners, Mexico and Canada, filed a suit recently with the World Trade Organization protesting the implementation of COOL, or country of origin labeling. I, for one, have kind of appreciated COOL because it tells me where my seafood comes from, and I don't always want to eat shrimp from Thailand. But in the uh, World Trade Organization panel, they issued a preliminary ruling on the case that Canada and Mexico filed against the U.S., stating that the mandatory COOL requirements do not meet the United States' stated objective that the labeling law informs and helps U.S. consumers make purchasing decisions regarding the origin of their meat, produce, and other products covered by the labeling law. COOL started out as a voluntary labeling program in the Farm Security and Rural Investment Act of 2002, which was the farm bill then. It had specified that COOL would include pork, beef, lamb, fish, perishable agricultural products, and peanuts, and that it would become a mandatory requirement by September 30th, 2004. It actually was not implemented until 2009. I'm sure you've noticed, uh, especially on your fish counter. However, opposition was mounted by numerous agricultural groups, including the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and the National Pork Producers Council as well as from packers, processors, and retailers. Cool opponents argued that the program costs would far outweigh the benefits, which were not well determined, and that the marketplace and consumers should drive the need for such programs. Also, the consensus was that the effort driving cool smacked of protectionism. Well, I can understand how they'd feel that way, um, because we buy so much uh, young cattle from Mexico and Canada, and then it ends up being finished and processed here in the United States. And of course, we buy it very cheap from those countries, and then we can market up here. So the packers, uh, processors, etc., make much more money than they would on cattle that they buy from the U.S. So um, anyway, long term, if the WTO ruling stands, the United States will have to dissolve mandatory cool or risk trade retaliations from Mexico and Canada, both of whom are major U.S. trading partners. So it's something to ponder. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco host Unfiltered, Heritage Radio Network's very own wine program. Here's a small clip. I will say that I tasted a lot of wines, and I went to Bollinger. Mm. And it was the the special cuvee, which is, and I'll explain the difference between that and Rotor in a minute, but um, the special cuvee was the most three-dimensional oh. wine that I'd had in my mouth up until that point, and it was actually pretty much one of the only ones of the day. Really spectacular, and it's made... I'll just say in a different style from Rotorua because it, it is a, a, set, a certain portion of the blend every year, and their style is aged in barrels, and it gives it more of a toasty, fuller mm-hmm. style. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's it's really you know it's a big champagne. It's a masculine champagne. Mm-hmm. It is. I I tried to get away, stay away from that, but it's true. I mean mm-hmm. James Bond, the whole thing. Yeah. But it's a it's a it's a big wine. It's a great food wine. But then want to hear more? We'll tune in every Tuesday at four p.m. live to Unfiltered, or check out the old episodes in our archives. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Thanks for listening.